Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. And in this episode we're speaking with Greg Hay from Wet Jacket Wines in the Central Otago of New Zealand. Um, we talk with Greg about his journey through founding a couple of other wineries with some other people, how he came to be at Wet Jacket and how he came upon the name. So right now let's go have a chat with Greg. So hello Greg, nice to have you on the podcast. Morning Boris, thanks for that. From a, uh, I'd like to say another stunning Central Otago day, actually overlooking Lake Hayes at the moment, which is very tranquil. Very chocolate boxy view out the window. Very very chocolate box view. Yeah. So, and um, so just yeah. for our just for our listeners, we're we're, we're uh, you. So you're just um, you're just sort of slightly north of of Queenstown, yeah, at the moment. Yeah, we're on the main road from Queenstown to Cromwell, I suppose you could say. It's kind of almost on the intersection where you go either left to Arrowtown or right towards Cromwell. It's actually the the, the closest probably proximity is um, Lake Hayes. It's about maybe one or two kilometres on the road up the hill from Lake Hayes on the entrance to a place called Bendemere, which was one of the old original sheep stations in the area like 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, <clears throat> the cellar door is actually tucked up in there in a, uh, in a beautiful old corrugated iron original wool shed. Yes, um, and, I, and story to tell. I've I've had the pleasure of um of calling in there a couple of times, and it is it is very it's a really cool spot, and I love the way that um you've incorporated the old the old shed and the um fromagerie, is it in, in there as well? Yeah, that's pretty pretty exciting. That's a, that's a much better word than cheesery. Yeah, we'll go with fromagerie. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, slightly yeah. more French anyway. Yeah, slightly slightly more French. No, and it's um. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful spot, and then um, you know location and the and the stone that's sort of in, incorporated there as well with the old wooden structure. It's very yeah, it is. It's, it is actually it's a really old building. It's one of the older buildings in Central Otago. So for those who haven't um, visited the wet jacket cellar door just yet, um, it's based around two parts. One is an old, pretty much what you call like a stone croft, like reminiscent of the Scottish early settlers, mm. uh, which is um, built out of schist um, 150 years ago because in those days there were no trees in central Otago to speak of. They were, it was all kind of tussock and grassland, and so the only thing they had to build out of was the stone which was available, and that's why the oldest buildings in central Otago were made out of that schist rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the timbers that they would have got for the roofs would have come up from the national parks, probably up the head of Lake Wakatuga, up around Glenorchy. Oh, yes. Um, yep. They would have come out there. So, yeah, it's a very – so the, the stone part is um, of the building where I think a family of nine used to live, but it's about the size of half a tennis court. So they didn't they didn't um, pleasure themselves with a lot of space in those days. No. Um, and then that's 150 years old, that part. And then later there was a wool shed, a corrugated iron wool shed added on which is pretty close to 100 years old. And that we've kind of kept that as part of the story to tell was the original farming history of um, the Wakatibu Basin. And in amongst that, then we've incorporated the um, fromagerie, the cheese component of the experience um, in the, into that building as well. So yeah, um, no, haven't, haven't, quite, haven't quite finished our, our, our fun with it yet. We've got a few more things on the go, but yeah, no, it's, it's been it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic um, building to have as a cellar door. Yeah, yeah, no, really worth popping into and, and very easy to get to as well. 
on um, on anyone who's tripping around the uh, central Otago and, and visiting wineries. And um, so where, where did your journey start, Greg, along your um, road to making wine? Um, well, it started, well, it's kind of, part of a, quite a convoluted story. You've got a couple of minutes. I actually, it, it didn't actually come out of a, out of a passion about um, wine at all, which is probably unusual to most people who are in the, who are in the industry today. Um, I went to university in Otago and did a commerce degree, which was majored in marketing and management. So I kind of, um, I suppose, spent three or four years getting a degree, which would have lent more to an inside job, but it was a fun time. And um, and then I went out and used that marketing degree up in Auckland for about six months and was kind of like forced to wear a suit and tie and very quickly realised that that wasn't my forte whatsoever. I didn't like being stuck inside, let alone wearing a suit and tie every day. Um, so I thought that I was going to go and find another vocation somewhere down the track. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then I went, um, jumped in my wee car and loaded up my worldly possessions which fitted into the back seat of a wee white Honda Civic in those days, which is about the size of a Fiat Bambina, um, and travelled down the west coast of the South Island and ended up um, getting a job um, beekeeping for a season with uh, a guy who is now my brother-in-law near a place called Lake Brunner, which was in a wee kind of a little wee hut out in the middle of nowhere that had no electricity, um, had an amazing double oven coal range, um, which heated the water and made all the food, had no neighbours, but we had about... Well, he had about 300-odd hives and spent a season doing that. And that kind of like was the first inkling I got, well, whatever I was going to do was going to be involved in outdoors because that was a completely different experience for me rather than being <clears throat> the indoor side of it. So um, I love the idea of just creating a product like uh, from, you know, from scratch with bees. Um, so I did that for a year and I loved it. So I knew I was on the path to do something outdoors and then – at about the same time, my brother Robert had just come back from um, a winemaking course over in Germany, and he'd spent a little bit of time or a season up in um, Auckland at Babbage's um, up there, and mm-hmm. he'd just come down and was starting to look for a piece of land to um, plant out down in central Otago. Um, that was about 1986, 87, and then I said I'd come and give him a hand to um, start planting the, the piece of land, which was um, called Chard Farm um, in those days. And I thought I'd be there for around about six weeks, giving him a hand to plant out. But I ended up being there for 10 years. And what was it like um, back then? Because that was early-ish um, days in the region for 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 planting vines and, and producing wine. I mean, there were a few others around, weren't there, but not... Yeah, Certainly there, there, like were, there were about four others. Um, yeah. The other, the other four producers in those days were Rippon. Rippon was underway. Gibston Valley with Alan Brady was underway. Um, uh, there was a little one called Taramere, which was Anne Pinkney's um, dream over on Speargrass Flat Road, which was kind of underneath Coronet Peak, and she was probably the earliest of the pioneer ones down here. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, her site was in a very frost-prone area, and so she got taken out. Um, early on in the piece after a few difficult frosty vintages Um, and Blackridge over in Alexandra and they were the 
the kind of the original four, but they were very small plantings. Like they had other day jobs themselves. So they, and, they, and they that's, they that's quite spread out too, isn't it? That's um, you've got Gibson yeah, well, close by, but, but otherwise Rippins and Wanaka and and then um, Black Ridge, as you said, and Alexandra. Yeah, yeah, and all all the wines, the first few vintages, the wines came across in. You know, they were talking very small um, on the back of a, you know, you could have fit them into the back of your boot, really, but into um, uh, what was pretty much a, like a little wee skyline garage at and Pinkney site at Taramere, and the wines were made in there for probably the first couple of seasons until um, Gibson Valley built their winery um, with Alan Brady um, just after that. So it was very garage-esque, you might call, very basic and rudimentary, but it was a great way to learn. Um, and everyone kind of chipped in and helped each other and you know we were we would be on Sundays we would catch up with each other basically trying to teach ourselves about wine because as, as I say in the early days I knew absolutely nothing about it um, apart from the fact that it was actually piqued my interest that there was something quite interesting you could go out of the ground in central Otago that really no one was um, was doing at that stage and was so it I think Char- I was probably the first standalone commercial venture in the area where there was no plan B as I say the other ones had kind of like other day jobs but yeah. um and and you know it was small beginnings I think the first year we planted out at Chard Farm we planted um about two or three acres and that doubled the plantings of central Otago so it was very small beginnings when you think what it is today which is still relatively small but it did start from very very small um base and and was it Pinot Noir you started out with um, yeah, well, it was actually, I'd have to say, it was a bit of a fruit salad that we originally planted. Mm-hmm. Um, Pinot Noir was the only red grape that we planted, which was lucky. I'm not quite sure whether we found Pinot Noir or Pinot Noir found us. Um, yeah. Luckily, yeah, we didn't, um, which was, in hindsight, probably one of the greatest things that we could have done, because even if we had have liked to have planted some of the other varieties, the Bordeaux varieties, like Merlot and Cabernet and Syrah, we would have done a terrible job with them with the viticulture and winemaking that was about back then as opposed to what it is now which is just leaps and bounds in advance because those varieties don't like the climate that we have down in central otago whereas the pinot noir um loves it and that's kind of like it proved to be the case then and it's um definitely proved to be it now so mm. we were very lucky that pinot noir was the red that we concentrated on um and also you know we planted um when I say a fruit salad, we planted smaller amounts of the other things like Pinot Gris, um, Sauvignon Blanc, Gewurztraminer, Riesling, and Chardonnay, and that's you know a, p- probably still pretty much the mix that there is today in Central Otago. So it was it was kind of a hit and miss, but I'd have to say in hindsight it was definitely far more of a hit than a miss as to what we got right. But it was a huge learning curve. There were no there were no consultants down here. There were no one to really teach you as you went along so it was a lot of seat of the pants learning which was and so I wouldn't have swapped it for anything that was the, probably the most exciting thing about that pioneering part of it was that the fact that you did learn as you went along and you had to you you learned by as little or as few mistakes as you could possibly make because it wasn't an easy time back then interest rates were about 22 percent wow interest rates we started off at Chard Farm it was all borrowed money so you know it wasn't a matter of being flashy and flamboyant about you know having the latest of anything, we had to go and we go to sales and go and borrow someone's not borrow but go and 
try and get for free things like irrigation pipe, which had been set up for a, an orchard and fill in all the holes with goof plugs and bung up plastic holes and um, just try and make do with what we could to try and keep the cost down. But, you know, that was a great part of the of the, um, of the fun, I suppose, of starting from scratch and um, doing it on the smell of an oily rag, but certainly learned to um, make things work that wouldn't have otherwise probably today. Yeah. Yeah, and what and so what varietals at Chard Farm did you end up with after a few years of trying things out? Um, probably, pretty much, we didn't actually we didn't actually to be honest. I don't think we actually tried anything and then pulled it out later on thinking that didn't work. Right. Okay. Um, I, the, the proportions probably changed a wee bit. You know, like I mean, back then in '87, I think there were only 40 wineries in the whole of New Zealand, mm. and there were about 10 in the South Island, um, and the majority of those were obviously in Marlborough. Um, you know, like, I mean, I think when part of the thing with the whole Pinot Noir story was that it was, it seems ironic now, but part of the reason we did go and plant Pinot Noir was um, the fact that we were on the 45th parallel south and we knew that Oregon was on the 45th north. So what they were doing should possibly transfer to what we were doing here. And we knew that they were doing Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. But it was even probably a little bit more basic than that. We knew that back then just prior to that um a winery in canterbury called saint helena with the mundy brothers that actually won a gold medal um at a competition for a pinot noir that they'd made and therefore back in those days we just thought that canterbury was our next door neighbor so right if it had worked in canterbury that wasn't that far away so it should definitely work in central otago but now you wouldn't even actually worry about what someone was doing two kilometres away because it's quite different as mm. to what, you know, when our knowledge of things like clones and rootstocks and soil samples and sites and that kind of stuff is is um, so much more um, knowledgeable now that it was just kind of funny when you look back and think that someone who won a gold medal in Canterbury way back then was kind of like part of the reason why we thought we could actually do it down here. But um, it's definitely transpired that um, – the Pinot Noir variety is very much at home in central Otago, probably mm. more so than we could have wished for back then. Mm. Mm. Okay, and so so ten, ten, 10 years of doing that, you would have seen quite a bit of change in those in that decade. Oh, yeah, no, definitely, because in those probably, well, for the first five or six, the plantings were pretty much only in the Gibston um, region. So the region is, is actually called Gibston, um, and it goes from the Bungee Bridge down to the Nevis Bluff. Uh, and it was, you know, as I say, it was just like seat of the pants. And then it wasn't until after that that the first plantings kind of went on in Bannockburn and then they kind of progressed out to Lowburn and then there's a little bit down in Alexandra. So there was a progression which way the plantings all evolved. And so it wasn't it wasn't kind of like a shotgun approach and everything got planted all at once around Central Otago. There was definitely a progression with the outlying regions of they always had Ripon and Wanaka and Blackridge and William Hill down in Alexandra, but they were pretty much on their own for the um, for the first decade, and then the, the, the focus was on planting Gibston, then it got on planting Bannockburn, and then kind of out into Lowburn, then over to Bendigo. So it kind of like it, it morphed itself um, all over the place, I suppose. And, but yeah, the, the original and, emphasis was on the Gibston. Yeah. And and the the spread to the uh, other other places and you know including different spots around Wanaka would would that is that because as you sort of touched on earlier there uh, there's more understanding clones technology um, 
to make that viable now or, or, or you know, later on than it was when you first started? Or was it just the knowledge of what places or what terrain could work and what would not? That just Do, do you understand um, what I mean? Was it a... I would say it's probably a combination of all of those things that you actually mentioned. I mean, as I say, the early the early stuff being planted in around um, sort of you know Chart Farm and Gibston and in that area, um, but then people started getting an understanding that um, with with access to water, these other parts, and then understanding how much hotter and drier like inland was around the Cromwell Basin, whether it be Bannockburn or Lowburn or Bendigo or Alexander, if you had water, you could pretty much do anything. Um, so that was part of the realisation. Then we got a much better understanding for the fact that all the soils weren't the same and there's huge differences in the soil between the Gibston and the Cromwell Basin and the other regions. That And then we you know, got a better understanding. Once you started looking at what the same clone, in the early days, whether it was 10 bar 5 or clone 5 or some of the other earlier ones, um, the natural fact, the flavour profiles that came out of those regions were markedly different. So that's when people started sitting down and going, okay, if we plant this one here and that one there and put it on this rootstock or that rootstock, we're actually, we, we are not going to end up with a generic style and everyone can kind of choose where they want to go. Um, there were huge, huge variations in the, in the soil, the rainfall, um, yeah, they're, like, they're just the accumulated heat and wind, things like wind and, um, all those things made for the ability for, for some amazingly different Pinot Noirs to come out from within the region. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. And and so, so ten years, ten years. You thought it would be six weeks, and it turned out at um, turned out at ten years. And then it was time to yeah. to try something else, new challenge. Yeah, so um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, obviously, my brother Robert still has Chard Farm, and that's you know I still drive past there and get a lot of um, you know. Pride in actually looking across there and think about you know we used to ram all those posts in by hand on a, on behind an old um, tractor and um, you know dug all the holes by hand with a spade for the for the vines and you know that's a so you know there's an immense sense of pleasure still driving past it's a stunning piece of land to look at yes um, but yeah so I was kind of got to a stage where I'm not sure whether I kind of like the creativity of starting things um, as a project because there's so many facets to it. Um, so I decided that um, I would have a wee bit of a break and then wasn't quite sure what I was going to do and then I decided to go again and um, be involved in starting up another one um, back in 1998 which was um, uh, the Peregrine Winery so I started that up with um, about three other um, friends that I knew at that stage from different walks of life um, and that kind of morphed into something which was um, much larger and had envisaged at the start of it. It was originally going to be part of a sparkling wine venture with a little bit of um, you know, red Pinot Noir and Pinot Grand Chardonnay in the mix, but it actually turned around the other way and um, ended up being obviously mainly the, uh, the, the, the table wine kind of market. So um, with a focus on Pinot Noir, once again, and Pinot Gris, um, Chardonnay, Rieslings, and Sauvignon Blanc. So, yes, I started up the Peregrine one back in 1980, sorry, 1998. And just and just um, for our listeners, we're, we're talking, um, what are we in relation to where you were at Chard Farm, sort of um, north, 
just normal. normal <coughs> it's in the middle of the Gibston. Yep. So if you think of the Bungee Bridge, which most people know, when Chad Farmer's right beside the Bungee Bridge, then um, you're going towards Cromwell. It's about probably three three kilometres away from there. Yeah. But that's where the that's and then it was about it was uh, it wasn't until later down the track I actually built the winery there. But before that, part of what I was trying to do from a vineyard point of view was actually spread. I like the idea of blending wines from different vineyards. So I think um, found lots of different vineyards, about four in the Gibston, and the rest were kind of like over in the Lowburn Basin area and some over in Bendigo as well. Um, and it's kind of spread them all out, actually, because it was – for me, that was always um, – I'm not an artist by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I actually can't even draw stick people very well. But I've got friends who are painters – and the idea of actually having the the, the wines or the, the grapes as a base coming off um, different vineyard sites from what I'd seen at my time at Chard Farm was that they all provided a different colour. So if you think of a an artist's palette when they're sitting in front of them and they've got all these different colours on a palette, they can paint by using different Pinot Noir flavours of different vineyards from within the central, the greater central Otago region. They can paint an amazing multicolored painting to look at which for me was always had more interest in it than if you gave someone a gray color and asked them to paint something you'd end up with something which is for me a little bit more one-dimensional so mm. um, I like the idea of doing lots of blends off lots of different vineyards to get something which had texture um, and complexity to it um, and I suppose one of the, the, the logo that we sort of came up with at Peregrine in the early days was Power with Elegance, which was kind of like always about the little falcon bird yep. um, that I based the, the name on. Mm. Well, the, the name Peregrine. Like naming, naming brands has always been a bit of an interest to me. Like Chard Farm was called, just to go backwards for a second, Chard Farm was called Chard Farm because it was actually owned by the Chard family for about 100 years, and they were um, early market gardeners in the region for growing vegetables for the miners who lived down in the Cromwell Gorge. Um, and they kind of lived there without any power for pretty much the entire time they, they, they lived down there. And they ended up, once the, once the gold mining finished, they moved down um, and became dairy farmers supplying milk to Cadbury's in Dunedin. Um, and then when... Robert and I were there. We were trying to figure out what you what would you call a new little wee winery um, that kind of had some relevance, and we kind of like went all over the place, and eventually decided that well, it was known as Chard Farm locally and historically. So why change what it was known as? And that's why Chard Farm stayed as Chard Farm because that was the name of the Chard family. Um, mm. And then with Peregrine, I when I was at Chard Farm, I actually had. Um, um, I had a kind of an affinity with the little New Zealand falcon, a kareerea, which is the bird on the $20 note. So I was lucky enough to have a couple of little baby falcons which had been orphaned that I kind of turned the front of my house into a aviary on the vineyard and had them for about three or four months, kind of like rehabilitating them and teaching them to feed in the wild and then let them go. So I kind of had an inkling that if I did start again, I would do something to do with a falcon mm. somewhere down the track. And then... Um, also on the Hay family crest, there, uh, which is Scottish, there is a, a peregrine falcon on the Hay family crest. Um, it was a, I think it was 980 AD. King Kenneth III was getting beaten up by the Vikings, and um, he asked the Hay clan from the highlands of Scotland to come and help him beat up the Vikings, which they did. And um, he maintained his 
his um, place on the seat. And then as a reward, he just said that wherever the falcon goes, when I let it go, that can be your family land. And that's why the, the little peregrine falcon was on the family crest. So it's got a kind of a tie-in with the family. Yeah, very cool. Um, so, um, yeah, so that was a bit of a thing about the naming. We can get down to why wet jacket in a second. but um, So that was part of that naming of the actual winery. And then, um, yeah, so it started off by being a big spread of um, vineyards and grapes from different sources. And um, I had the, in the early days, actually, had before we built the uh, Peregrine Winery, had the wines were made by different people in central Otago. Um, had a couple of the wines were made by Grant Taylor at, when he was at Gibston Valley Winery. Okay. Um, he made a reason for us there and a Gewurz Traminer. And then Rudy Bauer of Quartz Reef, Quartz Reef fame, um, prior to that was Ripon. And, um, you know, a great friend, Rudy. And um, he, he made the Pinot Noir, the Pinot Gris, and the Sauvignon Blanc for us. Um, so it was kind of, and then I also met Matt Dicey from Mount Devil, he made a couple of wines for us as well. So it wasn't until we actually built the, um, the facility back at um, that Peregrine that we um, farmed, got all the wines back under the, under the roof, so to speak. So but it worked really well in the early days. Everyone was really helpful, and the brand got established that way, and it kind of just grew it just kind of morphed into um, into a different little uh, product than what we'd probably originally foreseen. So yeah, and but it was great fun. And great it, fun once again being involved in you know that creativity side of developing what a brand looks like and what it stands for. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, um, that was exciting. So I did that for about 17, 17 years, and then um, sold my share in that to. Um, another investor who came in uh, back in about three years ago. Right. Okay. Okay. And then, in, in so you already did you already have um, wet jacket and some idea around what you wanted to do there in mind, or did you, uh, did, you no. did you sell your peregrine no, piece and then have a bit of a break and then think oh might be time to uh, yeah have, well it wasn't a very a, long break start again um, yeah no but but that for me is actually part of the fun of it because uh, I mean I. You know, I kind of, for, for my way of thinking, I, I like the creativity side of building something from scratch rather than just buying a, you know, I mean, I like buying a brand kind of wouldn't push my buttons at all. Yeah. Um, I like to start off and go, well, what does the brand represent? What does it look like? What's the, what does it feel like to people? And what's the story behind it? Because for me, like having a story um, is a critical part of the whole wine industry to, to give people something to buy into. So, you, for me, you need a story. So it got back down to if I am going to start again, what is the story going to be that looks nothing like what Chard Farm looked like or what the Peregrine story looked like? It needs to be a whole different um, concept. So, um, and part of it was, I suppose, once I thought I was going to do it, um, I went to a, a friend of mine, Pete Bartle, who was the winemaker at Peregrine for nine years, um, and I'd kind of done the viticulture side there and Peter done more the winemaking side, but we worked really well together as a team. And Pete had moved on about 2010 and become a winemaker at a facility over in Cromwell called Vinpro. And I remember going to Pete and saying, look, if you, I've got this concept, um, if you would agree to help me make the wines, I'll do it. And if you don't, I'll have to have another think about it. So he said, give me 24 hours. And um, yeah, and he said, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll do it. Mm. We'll, we'll um, get, back, get back into it. So it was a really easy um, decision having that part of it sorted out um, to go ahead with the with the venture because I knew I had a really good winemaker sitting behind me 
um, with Pete, and so I just did, went back to doing more of the viticulture side of it and finding where the grapes came from, which was really handy because, say, with the experience of planting vineyards for Chard Farm and with Perigre and that, I kind of had a fairly good idea of the, the wine style that I wanted to make. Um, and so where those flavours came from, and that made it pretty easy to um, kick-start it again, and then it was a matter of just going approaching um, vineyards and getting the fruit available, and away, away we went, basically. So Yeah, so tell, uh, tell, us, a yeah, bit, tell us a bit more about that. So we, what, what is it that, you're, um, that you've landed on with Wet Jacket and that you're bringing? Um, well, it's kind of like I'd, I've kind of gone back to um, – I like, I mean, obviously there's a, the seasons vary a lot, and so you're kind of still at the mercy of Central, Central Otago's weather um, on what you want to try and do. But there was an underlying profile that if you can, kind of for me, if you can get it nailed, nailed you can get it 90, 95% of the time, you can pretty much get it every year, and then the other 5% is just kind of fine-tuning or tweaking it, depending on whether it's been a hotter season or a slightly cooler one. So um, I just want wines which are, you know, obviously, really approachable. Um, that uh, that uh, you know, just uh, something that just appeals to the consumers, and then um, put that put with that a really interesting story behind it, and um, that people enjoy telling. And yeah, and it just it just seems to work. And you know, I've kept it a lot smaller than what the other two brands I was involved with with are. So it's a much smaller uh, product. As far as volume goes, we still do the varieties. I mean, I do um, three different Pinot Noirs from a, kind of a reserve Pinot Noir and then called the Pirate um, with a leather label on it to the wet jacket, which is the main engine, and then another um, little Pinot Noir called Putangi, which has got its own story, um, and then do Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Riesling, Gewurz, Tramina, Sauvignon Blanc, a rosé, and a sticky Sauvignon Blanc, um, just to finish off the off the mix. So yeah, it's a, you might, might go back to sound like a bit of a fruit cellar, but it definitely works in the cellar door, and we can rotate wines in and out depending on the season. And you know, some some of them are smallish production, um, like the the Pinot Noir and the Pinot Gris. We do roughly a thousand cases of each of those, and the other ones probably only about three to four hundred cases of each of those varieties. So you know, we run out of some wines, and then we can put other wines on. Um, so there's always a bit of a change up in the offering. So yeah, that, um, it seems to, work, seems to work really well. No, that's that, that sounds really interesting. The, the sticky Sauvignon sounds um, sounds good. Yeah, no, it's a delicious little wine. Um, obviously, it's relatively hard to get botrytis down here in the central Otago with the dry air that we have, um, even through vintage. So we've just gone for the like the late harvest side. That's off a vineyard in Bannockburn. Um, that just creates this really beautiful flavour. It's quite delicate, so it's not like the big unctuous, um, sweet, sweeter style um, late harvest wines you can get, but it's got lovely balance with the acidity in it, and it's got a really subtle, um, yeah, very subtle aromatics, but yeah, delicious wine. I'm really happy with it. Mm. Mm, good, good. And so you're you're enjoying that. I mean, it's it's, it's early days for you. Um, at Wet Jacket. Oh, yeah, sounds no, like you're only, a good time. The brand's only three years old. So, I mean, I could give a little bit of a background just on where the name Wet Jacket Yeah, no, do. Come. So, that, you know, the same before, like, um, to start up a new brand which has its own identity um, for me was, um, was important. And I've spent, so 
I've spent a lot of my time when I'm not in central Otago. Um, my other favourite place, well, one of my other favourite places is um, down in Fiordland, and I've spent a lot of time down there for the last 20 or 30 years, um, mainly around the Dusky Sound, Brakesy Sound area. Um, and it's just a very kind of spiritual place, I suppose. Um, for those who have been, haven't been down there, those who have been down into that area will hopefully know what I'm talking about. But and it's what, very remote. What, what, do you, um, what are you doing down there when you're there? Well, there's a couple of things. I'm lucky enough to have a boat that stays down there with um, some friends. Mm. So I often do trips down there on the boat, um, yep. taking other people down there or just going having a bit of a break down there. It's a great place if you're into hunter-gathering or cooking. Yep. Um, Obviously, not much you can get down there as far as um, green stuff goes, like, you know, as far as the vegetables go. But as far as, like, seafood, um, it's a it's a smorgasbord down there if you're into that kind of, which I love. You know, there's, like, crayfish and blue cod and groper and tuna and tuna when the season's right, which is about now. Mm-hmm. And kingfish has started appearing, but um, – and there's also lots of, you know, venison. So if you're into cooking, which I love cooking um, – that's a that's a great place to go and spend time. So, I've been going down there for about twenty five years, um, predominantly down there. And then um, the the so the part the when I was down there when I was trying to figure out what to name this new little venture I was going to do, I was down there on the boat, taking a charter trip on the boat. And um, I had I'd written a list of about fifteen different names on a piece of paper that I put on the wheelhouse window, which had all stuff to do with out here. Actually, they had. There were places and names that were kind of more Central Otago affiliated, but they didn't actually mean so much to me. And I remember on the boat one night, I actually drove the boat up to the end of a place called Wet Jacket Arm uh, and stayed there the night on anchor. And I was, just remember there was one of those absolutely gorgeous nights you can get in Fjordham where there's not a cloud in the sky and the stars are kind of twinkling. And it was a flat, flat evening. I thought Wet Jacket Arm's kind of a, kind of a place that I love coming and parking up the boat up, and it's just, there's something about it, it's a, it's a marine reserve, and I remember thinking, you know, wet jacket, wet jacket kind of means something to me, and I'll probably spend the rest of my days explaining why the name wet jacket, because it's got nothing to do with grape growing or winemaking, but it's all part of a really interesting story, and so I decided that I will call it wet jacket, and the name wet jacket came from Captain Cook, um, who once again probably had not much to do with the wine industry, but he was on his second trip into New Zealand in 1773. He came direct from England to into Dusky Sound with the intent purpose of getting the latitude and longitude of New Zealand because after his first trip, he had latitude but not longitude. So he went and parked up in a place called Pickersgill Harbour on his boat, which was the Resolution, and he stayed there for six weeks to get the celestial sightings and put a pin in the ground pretty much and said this was the first place that New Zealand's actually been mapped so they knew they could come back and find it whenever they wanted to, having got the latitude and longitude perfect. Mm-hmm. And he also was pretty sure that it was going to become one of the major navigational harbours of the world way back then because it was quite a vast area of sheltered, relatively sheltered harbour, but it had all the rimu trees and fresh water, an abundance of bird life and obviously an abundance of seafood down there that they could replenish. Uh, and so he spent six weeks sending out the longboats to do all the depth recordings in the sound as well, um, using a piece of string and a weight on it, pretty much. And it was a massive area. 
and they did that to such an accurate extent because Cook was sure that the, the next people who came back in after him needed to know where they could and couldn't go um, in case of rocks and obstructions like that. And then um, they, they did the hydrographic sonar through there in 1995, so kind of like almost, almost 200 years later um, after he was in there, and they only found two small mistakes that he'd actually made on all of his charts. So wow. it was pretty amazing. And he called... He named all the early European stuff down there. He actually made New Zealand's first beer down there in 1773, which I suppose is the closest link we can find to the wet jacket story and Captain Cook and the liquor industry is the fact that he did make New Zealand's first beer, which apparently was actually horrible to drink. It was made out of rimu, manuka, and molasses, but it was <laughs> intent to, to stop scurvy, not not for partying on the boat, I don't think. So. No, no. But anyway, just to finish that part off, he they were naming things as they went because they were only there for six weeks. And so when they when one of the longboats came back from four days out of a an arm or a sound with with all their depth recordings, he kind of said to them, "You know, where have you been?" And they obviously had sodden jackets, and they kind of pointed where they'd been on the map. And he just said, "Well, we'll call that wet jacket arm." So <laughs> that is where wet jacket came from. Yeah, very that's good. Kind of where the name wet jacket came from. So yeah, so so kind of like that. And um for the last. Um, 10, or 15, 10 or 12 years I've actually been on a thing called the Field and Conservation Trust which is a really important um, organisation as far as trying to help um, mitigate some of the destruction that's been done due to the introduction of the mustelids and you know, rats and stoats and possums and deer into the country, especially down in Fjordland so part of what we do on the, on the Field and Conservation Trust is try and um, save a lot, a lot of these birds from the decline that they've been going under for the last kind of 150 years, um, which is going really, really well. So I've got a, besides the enjoyment of being down there on the boat and um, hunter-gathering, there's a there's some major, major work that's going on down there protecting some of New Zealand's rarest birds. So it's a nice to be on involved in that the Field and Conservation Trust as well. And that's yeah. um, something that Wet Jacket is involved in and now sponsoring another one called the Kia Conservation Trust down the same region to try and help figure out what's going wrong with some of the Kia populations in the specifically in the in the um, Murchison Mountains area but in the greater fielded area as well. So um, as a as a brand and as a company we've kind of like put our we're quite passionate about trying to do a lot of conservation work in Fjordland. Yeah, no, very good. Very good. Um Oh, no, well, that, that's, that's a good place for us to sort of um, get towards sort of wrapping up. But before we get to our final question, I thought I might just ask you what one of your favourite um, food wine pairing is when, you, when, you, when you're whipping something up down there in the sound. What is it? Um, is there anything in particular that jumps to mind that um, fresh, maybe fresh out of the ocean or something that you like to pair with, with one of your wines? Well, there's a venison carpaccio salad. Which, which I do enjoy making, mm. which is like a seared venison um, backsteak dish, which is absolutely delicious with a lot of lemon juice, olive oil, black olives, salt and pepper, um, capers, red onions, feta mm. cheese, and a, like a garlic aioli. And that goes perfectly well with the wet jacket Pinot Noir, obviously. Yum. If it was a fish dish, um, well, it's hard to beat just some like freshly baked blue cod although groper is probably one of my favorite fishes um and i just i just goes really well with um the wet jacket pinot gris or even the wet jacket central tago sauvignon blanc um any of, any of those fish, fish or crayfish dishes down there with yeah. like some lovely so like a green salsa verde yeah nice and ha- uh, how do you how do you do the groper how do you, which one sorry how do you do the groper how do you how do you prepare that 
Well, it's actually one of my favourite ways is to have it um, is shashimid mm. um, or in a um, ceviche. Oh, yeah. would be one of my favourite ways to have gropo. Fantastic. Um, otherwise, probably because they're like the nice small, they're called schoolie gropers, so they're only about like two feet long. They're amazing if you can bake them and make yeah. up a, like a little, like a green salsa verde and put cuts in the flesh and then rub rub that into the cuts and wrap them up in tinfoil and bake them. Absolutely delicious. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, pretty hard, it's pretty hard not to enjoy the food down there. As I say, it's just um, it's a smorgasbord, whatever you can Whatever, whatever you feel like, it's relatively easy to get. So uh, oh. long, long may that last with um, a lot of work that's going on down there as well. So yeah, well, that sounds uh, sounds incredibly special to be in, in, in that type of amazing location, having beautiful food, and then with um, fantastic wines as well. That's that's pretty that's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, it's just a nice way to tie the brand, and I suppose for me, it's just kind of like it's um, that's where the name Wet Jacket Arm comes from mm. down there. And it's mm. part of my passion is. Spending time down that area, and it's um yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great way to tie the two the two of my passions together, which is obviously the wet jacket brand and uh, and the work we're doing in Fiordland or the enjoyment of Fiordland, I should say. So yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's, an easy, it's an easy anyway, and and part of the thing that we were talking about, Boris, it's a great story um, for the for, I've got fantastic staff who uh, you know work with me in the in the cellar door and it's a really good story for them to be able to tell so part of what we do is not just talk about the wine story of central otago we can talk about the early farming history of central otago which is a story that's overall especially for overseas visitors who have never been in a wool shed or smelt or felt lanolin and you know they are, you can spend ages talking to them about farming before they even get to the get to the wine and then we can also tell the cheese making story and we can tell the early european history of fiordland Mm. which is where a lot of the early European um, stories of New Zealand were actually down there. The first house in New Zealand was built down in Dusky Cove and the first boat in New Zealand was built in Dusky Sound, I should say. Um, and let's say the first beer was actually made in Dusky Sound as well. So there's a lot of stories that people aren't aware of that we can tell and then they can go and when they're sitting around a dinner table with friends, they can tell tell their friends all about the wet jacket story and any stories they want to that they might have gleaned from their from their visit. So yeah, yes. it works really well. <laughs> gleaned, gleaned or made up. Um, and oh yeah, no, we try and keep it relatively relatively true. There might be a few <laughs> tall ones that come out every now and then, but no, I'm talking about around the dinner around the dinner table anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we finish on if you could have any glass of wine with anyone, anytime, anywhere. Um, who and where cool. and what would that be? That's a big question. Mm. Um, I would probably like to have sat down with Ernest Shackleton, who is one of my favourite people to read his his stories and his adventures. Um, an amazing adventure and the things that he accomplished, especially on that last expedition. <clears throat> um, I think yeah, I'd like to would have liked to have sat down with Ernest Shackleton and had a glass of Pinot Noir, maybe around a fire on South Georgia Island just after he got there, after crossing um, that historic trip he did with the other two guys to um, get rescued after that mammoth expedition where the boat got sunk and they spent all that time going across the roughest part of the water in a little wee boat called the James Caird. Um, I think that's a truly inspiring story. So In Antarctica? Yeah, I would say a glass of, a glass of Pinot Noir around a fire on South Georgia Island, when he, when he, definitely after they had a bath and a shave anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, nice, nice. I'm sure he would have he should, would have um, certainly appreciated that after that. Um, yeah. after some of those adventures, um, some some great reads on that on those on that on that expedition. But yeah, yeah. at oh. a at a pinch, I'd say there'll be lots of interesting people, but he'd be one of them anyway. Yeah, no, very good, very good. Oh, that's great. Hey. Um, Thanks, Greg. We really appreciate um, you taking the time to to talk with us and um, tell us tell us about your journey. And that's exciting. It's um, uh, early days yet for Wet Jacket, but already great things happening. And um, we look forward to what's going to come out over the next um, next few years as well. Yeah, no, look, it is. It's really exciting. As I say, we're just going to keep it relatively small and personal, um, and just have fun with it. As I say, you've got, um, got lots of good stories that will keep on un- unfolding and lots of great wines that will keep on um, popping out under that label. So, um, yeah, I hope any of the listeners who um, get a chance to pop into the cellar door and come and learn a little bit more about the wet jacket and the story that's behind it. So yeah, we, uh, we'd love, love to see people there. So Yeah, and I can definitely recommend that. Very good. Hey, thanks, Screw. We appreciate that. You're welcome, Boris. You have a great day. You too. All the best. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. We've been speaking with Greg Hay from Wet Jacket Wines in the central Otago of New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more about Wet Jacket, you can, of course, find them online, wetjacket.nz. Um, and also be sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts where we talk with other people involved in the wine industry here in New Zealand and their stories and have a look at some of the other podcast series on podcast.nz you can follow us on Instagram and we look forward to having your company again very shortly when we talk with someone else about their story in wine in New Zealand hey kōna mai, bye for now